And so before we get into this, next, this, con- this concluding message in our Christ Alone series, let's go before the Lord in prayer. Lord, I-, I thank you for the privilege that we have of opening your word week in and week out. God, you have spoken most clearly through your word, and it is what we can rely upon for the direction of our life. We have so many decisions we have to make in our life, so many things that are in front of us that are pulling at our attention. But your word stands as the sure foundation for our life, and it's what we depend upon. It's what we lean on. It's what we run to. And so, Lord, I ask, God, that you'd speak to us clearly through your word here this morning. Help me to communicate. Help me to get out of the way. And help, God, I pray that you'd speak through me. Lord, bless your people here this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. 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 So how many of you heard Beto O'Rourke speak a couple weeks ago? I believe it's a couple weeks ago. Beto O'Rourke, he is a candidate for president. And so they did a, CNN did a forum about LGBTQ issues in our society today. And they, they called it a civil rights, a civil rights forum. And so they fielded all kind of questions around that subject. And the moderator asked Beto a question. He said, do you believe that churches and religious institutions should lose their tax-exempt status if they do not endorse same-sex marriage. And without hesitation, Beto O'Rourke said, absolutely, yes, they should. Now, that was not shocking to me. It was shocking when I heard it because they're actually saying what they've always thought and what they've always believed. And, and, and you know what that really does is when we, if we would lose, if, if nonprofits like Living Word Church would lose our tax-exempt status, what that means is, is that they would be taxing our property. They'd be taxing this building right here, which is a lot of money, of taxes. They'd be taxing the 90 acres that we have here. And so, you know, when that takes place, you have, you have religious groups from all different stripes, whether it's Catholic or Muslim or, or, or Christian, Protestant, all different groups are crying foul, saying, this is crazy that they would even say this. There's no way that, that, that the government can say that you can believe this, but you can't believe that. And it is crazy. It is insane to think that that could actually happen and probably will happen in our lifetime. So I was listening to all kinds of different commentary about that subject. And, and you know what I begin to think about is that that is not actually the greatest threat to the American church. The greatest threat to this church, the greatest threat to any church in our country is not that we would lose our tax-exempt status. It's not the greatest threat to the church of Jesus Christ in America. So I believe that the greatest threat... One of the greatest threats, I should not say the greatest threat, but I would say one of the greatest threats to the church of, in America, the church of Jesus Christ in America, is a mixture within the church of believers and non-believers. One of the greatest threats. It's a mixture of people who declare that Jesus is their Lord and they actually live it. But then within the congregation, within the crowd, within the crowd of churches all across our land, they're filled with people who are Christian by name only. They're Christian because they're American. You know, the the stats say, if if, if the people who do stats say that that, that over 50% of of, of Americans are Christians. 
Or they believe that they're Christians because they're Republican. They might be a Republican. So they say, well, you're a Christian then too. Because, you know, all Republicans are Christian, are, are Christians, right? And, and so we have these stereotypes that are out there. So you have people that fill buildings that are Christians by name only. And that mixture, listen to me, weakens the church of Jesus Christ. And it's one of the battles that has happened, not just in America today in the 21st century, but it is a battle that the Apostle Paul and the early disciples had to deal with during their day, is that there was always this temptation of this mixture to come into the family of God. People who were saying, hey, I'm a believer. I follow Christ. I'm a Christian. But they're, but, but they're not living it out in their lifestyle, in their relationships, in the things that they say, in how they live. Their, their lifestyle is not matching up with their declaration of their faith. And that mixture within the church, I believe, is one of the greatest threats to the effectiveness of Christianity in our country. It weakens the, the, the community of faith when we have that mixture. And the Apostle Paul deals with it. Listen. Listen to Revelation chapter 3. This is the church, the church of Laodicea, Laodicea. And Jesus speaks about this church in Revelation. And this church, this church believed that they were something that they were not. And listen to what Jesus says about this church. He says, for you say, you say, I am rich. I have prospered. I need nothing. Not realizing that you are wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. I counsel you to buy from me gold refined by fire so, so that you may be rich. And this is speaking about rich in faith towards Christ. He's not actually talking about money or finances or gold or possessions. He's speaking about faith in him. He says, he says, he says, I counsel you to buy from me gold refined by fire so that you may actually be rich and white garments so that, 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 that you may clothe yourself and the shame of your nakedness may not be seen and salve to anoint your eyes so that you may see. And this has always been a temptation around Christianity that people can be deceived about whether or not they are really in the faith. They believe they're a Christian because they're American. They believe they're a Christian because they attend church. They believe they're a Christian, but their lifestyle doesn't back up their profession of faith. And the Apostle Paul is dealing with this. Do you remember the the first message in Christ alone? There was false teachers within the church that that were trying to add legalism to the faith. And it was Jewish Christians. They were called Judaizers. They were false Christians. They were Judaizers. And they were Jews who were trying to bring in Jewish ceremonial customs into the church. And they were trying to tell the the non-Jew, the Gentile males, that they needed to be circumcised in their flesh to be a part of the family of God. To be justified. To be made right before God. And so we dealt with legalism for righteousness in week one. This week in Philippians 3, we're going to deal with this idea of false grace, false assurance, this idea that, 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 that grace gets me in and that I can live however I want to live and it doesn't matter, doesn't matter that my lifestyle doesn't back up my profession because I have been saved and I've placed my faith in Christ, my lifestyle doesn't matter. And the Apostle Paul deals with that and he addresses it. He addresses it clearly. He addresses it clearly in Philippians 3. And here's what these false teachers taught. You had the Judaizers, and we know what they taught. We read that. We dealt with that in week one. But these Gentile, they were Gentile false teachers, and here's what they taught. They taught that spirit was good, and that matter, flesh, was evil. And since the body, this is what they believe, since the body was incurably evil, that it didn't matter how you lived in your flesh as long as your spirit was secure. You know, kind of like fire insurance. 
you know, you, you, you can kind of get caught up in this idea that if I will just come and confess Christ, then I get my fire insurance stamp and I'm good to go. It doesn't matter anything else after that. This is kind of that mindset that, has, that was taken root in the very early church. This idea that the flesh is incurably evil and it doesn't matter what you do in the flesh as long as your spirit is secure. All things, all those things do not matter eternally since they only affect the body. That's what they believe, not the spirit. And so the Apostle Paul deals with it here. And, and, and he's going to deal with it in a unique way here. So let's go to the text. Let's listen to Paul's warning about these false teachers that are encouraging false professions of faith. Listen to this. This is Philippians 3. This is the text we'll cover, we'll, un- we'll unpack here. Brothers, join in imitating me and keep your eyes on those who walk according to the example you have in us. For many of whom I've often told you and now tell you even with tears, walk as enemies of the cross of Christ. Their end is destruction. Their God is their belly and they glory in their shame with minds set on earthly things. But our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body by the power that enables him even to subject all things to himself. Therefore, my brothers, whom I love and long for, my joy and my crown, stand firm thus in the Lord, my beloved. So I believe here that there's some clear marks that we see within this text. We're going to dig out some clear markers, some clear marks for those that are genuine believers in Jesus Christ. There's some clear signs that we can look in our life and in your life. We can see clear signs that set you apart, that, that, that demonstrate that your faith is more than just, hey, I walked the aisle. Hey, I signed a card. Hey, I confessed Christ. It actually is a sign and an indicator that you are actually a genuine believer in Jesus Christ. There's some marks that are laid out here within this text. And the first one we're going to unpack is this. This is found in verse 17. As believers, genuine believers, as believers, our life becomes an example to follow. As believers, this is a clear indicator in our life that we are believers in Jesus Christ, that we place our faith, is that our life becomes an example to follow. Listen to what the Apostle Paul says there in verse 17. He says, brothers, join in imitating me. He says, you need to imitate me. Do as I do. Live as I live. How bold is that? How bold is that for somebody to say, imitate me, follow me? The Apostle Paul said, follow me. And then he says this, and keep your eyes on those who walk according to the example you have in us. So he says, I need you to follow my example. But there's also other believers who are following my example and the example of Christ. You need to watch their life as well and follow their example. That is a core principle of Christianity. Is that when you become a Christian, what happens? You become an example to follow. And, you know, as I was thinking about this and writing these thoughts down, I I, I thought about what some of you might say. And some of you might say, well, I I don't want to be an example to follow. I am not a really good person, and I'm not an example to follow. The question is not whether you are a good person or a perfect person. That's not the question. The question is, is have you placed your faith in Jesus Christ, and have you been born again for a millisecond? How many of you have been born again for more than a millisecond? (laughs) Okay. You're an example. You've been born again for more than a millisecond, for less than, I mean, I don't know what, I don't know if a millisecond, however that happens in time and space, when you're born again, immediately, you are 
an example. And why are you an example? Because you're an example to somebody who has not done that. You immediately become an example to someone who's not placed their faith in Christ. And you can say, you can look at them and say, imitate me. Follow me. Now, now, as we all know, when we become saved, we're not perfect yet. We don't have everything all worked out yet. God's working out all these details in our life. But to say that I become a believer, and this is what these false teachers are trying to say, that look, look, yeah, you just confess Christ, just believe in the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ, and it doesn't matter what you do in your flesh. That is contrary to Christianity. When you become born again, what happens? The seed of God's word has taken root in your heart. And when seed takes root into soil, what happens? Soil that's been prepared. When you plant the seed, those pumpkins back there, they started as seeds. And when those pumpkin seeds were planted in the ground, it was soil that was prepared. It's like our heart, soil prepared by the Holy Spirit. The gospel comes. The seed of the gospel gets planted in our heart. And what takes place? Fruit begins to pop up. All of a sudden, out of nowhere, you begin to change. And so these false teachers were were, were clearly wrong to say, it doesn't matter how you live. Grace is grace. Grace is a license for you just to live however you want to live. Absolutely not. As believers, our life becomes an example to follow. The gospel is not just a message to believe, but a life-transforming power that changes you from the inside out. Amen? It's a life-transforming power that changes you from the inside out. There is no such thing, no such thing as a Christian name on, in name only. They don't exist. You're not a Christian in name only. You can't say, I'm a Christian. Well, they do exist. <laughs> but, but you can't say you're a Christian and just be in name only. You're not a Christian if it's just in name only. To be a Christian is to be an example to follow. That's what Jesus talked about in Matthew 13. Do you remember the parable of the sowers? Do you remember that parable? Let's read it just just for some context here. Hear then the parable of the sower. When anyone hears the word of the kingdom, this is the gospel of Jesus Christ, and does not, here's the key, I want you to get this, this is key. They hear the gospel, this sentence is so key right here, and does not understand it. Do you remember I talked to you earlier during the prayer time? A correct view of God and his holiness produces a correct view of who we are. This is what happens when people don't understand the gospel. They're told that the gospel is something that it's not. They're told that the gospel is a get-out-of-jail-free card. They're told that the gospel is a message that will help you become fulfilled in this life, that it's, that it's only a message so you can get all the stuff that you want in this life. And they don't understand the gospel because they've not been given the true, correct gospel, which is that God's holy, I'm sinful, and I deserve the wrath of God in and of myself. And God, through his great love and mercy for us, provides a way of redemption and forgiveness through Jesus Christ. That's the gospel, in short. So that key phrase there, any, if anyone hears the word of the kingdom and does not understand it, the evil one comes and snatches away what has been sown in his heart. This is what was sown along the path. As for it was sown on rocky ground, this is the one who hears the word, immediately receives it with joy, yet they have no root in them in himself, but endures for a while, and when tribulation or persecution arises on account of the word, immediately they fall away. They prove to not be a genuine disciple because when persecution comes, they deny their Lord. And verse 22, as for what was sown among thorns, this is the one who hears the word, but the cares of the world, the deceitfulness of riches choke out the word, and it proves unfruitful. This is the person who didn't count the cost. 
And they, and they loved the world more than they loved God. And so they, they, they heard the word, but the cares of the world, the deceitfulness of riches choked out the word and there was no fruit. As for what was sown on good soil, this is the soil prepared by the Holy Spirit. This is the one who hears the word and what? Understands it. He indeed, that means it's going to happen. He indeed bears fruit and yields in one case a hundredfold, in another 60 and in another 30. What that means is 160 and 30. It means that, it, that all of us, if we have indeed understood the gospel of Jesus Christ and have repented and placed our faith in him, we will have evidence of fruit in our life. And it may, it may not be as much as some other people. Some of, us, some of us may be a little bit further along than others, but it'll be 30, 60, or 100. It's, we're going to indeed bear some level of fruit in our life. If there is no external fruit that exists, then there was no internal transformation that took place. It's got to be something in your life that demonstrates that you have been born again. Because what we know in 2 Corinthians is that that when you have placed your faith in Christ, the old has passed away and behold, all has been made what? Brand new. You internally have been changed. And so because you've been changed, something is going to change on the outside. The way you talk, the way you think. All the areas of your life begin to be changed. External fruit is an indicator of internal realities. External fruit is an indicator of internal realities. When Paul says, follow me, he's saying, and saying, imitate me, he's not saying, follow me because I'm perfect. He's saying, follow me because I am an example to follow because I have placed my faith in Christ. And that's what all of you should do. Have you thought of, think about in your life just for a moment about examples in your life of faith. People that you know, that you just think about their life and how they lived for Christ, and they're just such great examples. Can you think of a few as you're sitting there? Think about people who've gone through difficult circumstances in their life, and they stood in faith. And they've demonstrated that their faith is genuine because they have endured, they've persevered in their faith no matter what comes, whether it's sickness or cancer or financial ruin, whatever comes in their life, their, their faith is proved out in, their, their belief in Christ is proved out in their faith that they persevere, that they, that they believe no matter what. Doesn't mean that they don't waver. Doesn't mean that they don't have second thoughts or that they second guess God and they question God, but it means that they endure in faith because, because the, inter- the, the eternal seed of God's word has truly taken root in their heart. I think about many people in my life. I could start naming them. I could start talking about some of you that are here that have been through incredible challenges in your life. And I see your faith. Though I can't see the inside of you, I see what's on the outside and I see that your faith is genuine, that you believe in God. He's truly transformed your life. These are examples of faith. So the Apostle Paul wasn't saying I'm perfect, but this is what he was saying when he says imitate me. This is what we're all called to say. Follow me. We're all called to be examples. It it really means this. I'll show you how to fight pride because I've had a little bit of that in my life. I'll show you how to fight discouragement because I've been discouraged a little bit in my life. I'll show you how to fight sinful temptations because I have those pretty often. That's what the Apostle Paul is saying. Follow me. Imitate me. I'll show you how to trust God when the circumstances look bad. Follow me. Follow my example. Being an example is the Christian life. Hebrews 11 says this. By faith, Abel offered a more acceptable sacrifice. By faith, he offered a more acceptable sacrifice. By faith, Enoch was taken up so that he should not see death. By faith, Noah 
in reverent fear, constructed an ark. Can you imagine? What an example to follow. He looks around. God says, hey, by the way, it's going to rain. What is rain? It's never rained before. What's an ark? We don't need a boat. We don't need an ark. We don't, what's an ark? You mean to build an ark? But, but, but by faith, Noah, in reverent fear, this is what Hebrews, uh, Hebrews 11 says, by faith, Noah, in reverent fear, constructed an ark. By faith, Abraham obeyed when he was called to go. Remember? God said, Abraham, go. I've called you to go to a place you've never been, never heard of, never seen. What did he do? He got up and he went by faith because he believed in God. By faith, Sarah considered him faithful who had promised. You know, Sarah did waver for a little while. Abraham did waver for a little while. They did. They said, okay, we're going to work this out in our own strength and in our own flesh. They weren't the greatest examples to follow at that point, right? But they endured. They persevered. And by faith, she considered him faithful who had promised. And God fulfilled his promises in their life and gave them a son named Isaac. By faith, Moses chose to be mistreated than to enjoy the fleeting pleasures of sin. By faith, it's the Christian life. By faith, we are transformed through faith in Jesus Christ and our lives become examples. Hebrews 12.1 says this, Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay hold, let us lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith. Since we are surrounded, and Hebrews 11 has all these models of faith, examples to follow, examples to follow, examples to follow. In chapter 12, verse 1 says, therefore, since we are surrounded by so many great examples, witnesses, examples to what it's like to trust in God and to walk in faith, since we're surrounded by all those witnesses, let us lay aside every weight and sin, which so clings so closely. And let us run with endurance. And you know what it says there at the end? We are looking to who? To Jesus, the founder and the perfecter of our faith. We don't have it all together, but Jesus is sanctifying us each and every day in our life. Those of you who are genuinely born again, you're followers of Jesus Christ, you are an example to follow. And even in your difficulties, in your sins, in your mistakes, you can be an example to follow with you allowing the Lord to work in your life and to perfect you. Amen? Amen. So this is a marker that is given to those who would say that, that your life doesn't really change when you become a Christian. It doesn't matter how you live. No. Paul says, imitate me, follow me. And you see these over here, they've done the same thing. Follow them. And then he switches. Let's go back to the text, Philippians 3, 18 through 19. And now he talks about another group of people. He says this, for many of whom I've often told you, and now tell you even with tears, walk as enemies of the cross of Christ. Their end is destruction, their God is their belly, and they glory in their shame. The second mark of a genuine believer, not just a name-only believer, not just somebody who says, I got my fire insurance and I'm good to go, I've prayed the prayers, but my life isn't changed. A mark is this, that as believers, worldly appetites no longer drive us. Worldly appetites no longer drive us. Listen to what he says there. He talked about this first group and says, these are examples to follow. Follow me and follow them because they're following Christ. We're following Christ. And then he says, look out 
for those whose God is their belly. What does that mean? Their God is their belly. What's our belly represent? It represents our appetites. It represents our desires. And so he says, watch out for those who have their appetite as for, for sinful things, for fleshly things. Paul warned the church that this, this group of people, he, he warned them even with tears. He was even with tears, with compassion for them and for the genuine believers. Look out for those who are trying to say, and what's interesting is that it says that they, that they walk as enemies of the cross of Christ. It means that, that their confession could have been something different, but their walk proves something else. He says they are walking differently than what they could possibly be confessing. And they're proving out that their fleshly desires are what drives them. Their God is their belly. Their God is their fleshly appetites. Have you ever been driven by desires in your life? Anybody? Yeah, we all have, right? Driven by desires. You, you want to do something and your desires overwhelm you. And so that desire causes you to pursue. Just like I talked about is it last week I talked about when I met my wife? Yeah, it was in last week's message about that I may know him. I had some desires in my life. And so because of those desires to want to get to know my wife, it drove me. And those were good godly desires. But have you ever been driven by sinful desires in your life? All of us have. Have you ever met somebody that's hangry? Do you know what hangry is? Hangry? Hungry and angry? Have you ever met me before? You've met somebody that gets hangry. That's a fleshly desire, and it can be a sinful fleshly, fleshly desire in my life. But it, that, that's an example of a desire that I have to have satisfied, right? So last, yesterday, um, I don't know what happened. I, my mind's not really clear on all the details, but I didn't eat till like 1.30. And, I mean, it was just bad. You know, I had my breakfast at like 8 or so, and I didn't eat till 1.30. And, you know, I don't, I, there's not much of me here really to sustain for long extended periods of time and so I have this desire that wells up within me and if I don't feel that desire I just get irritable and I'm not good to be around and, 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 and the Lord is still working in me and this is an example of a fleshly desire that drives us and, and, and actually I got this splitting headache yesterday because I didn't eat for so long and so, that, so that's my excuse to get hangry is that I don't want to get a headache that's my built in excuse that's, that's what I'm talking about, this, this desire. And this is what he's talking about with these group of people, these people who are saying that they're believers in Jesus Christ. Their walk is proving something different. Their God is their belly. Their God is their desires. God's word speaks to our responsibility to live out, to put to death the deeds of the flesh, to live out what the gospel has worked in us. Again, to say that my life doesn't change is contrary to what the power of the gospel actually is there to do. It's there to change our very desires. Listen to 1 Peter chapter 1. Therefore, preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. This means that as Christ is revealed to you, set your hope in him. And as obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance. Don't be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance. But as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. That means Ben Bufkin, quit being rude to your wife and your kids when you're hangry. 
It's not an excuse. That's funny to talk about, but that's what that's saying right there. In all your conduct, in all of our lives, every area of our life is touched by the gospel if you are a genuine Christian here this morning. All of it. Your marriage, the way you raise your kids, your relationship with them, your finances, your job, your, 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 your purity of thought and mind, action. All of it should be touched by the gospel. The gospel doesn't just come in and touch this part and this part and leaves us alone. It's false belief. It touches every area of our life. As he is he who is holy has called us to be holy. You shall be holy for I am holy. First Peter chapter 2 says, Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from passions of the flesh. These people, the God was their belly. Abstain from the passions of the flesh which wage war against your soul. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds. They may see your fruit. They may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. To believe that as a Christian we can live or continually walk in sin just because our salvation is secure apart from good works is a perversion of grace. I'll read that again for you. To believe that as Christians we can live or continually walk in sin just because our salvation is secure apart from good works is a perversion of grace. And Paul deals with it throughout his letters. He deals with it over and over again. Because grace is so unbelievable. It's a free gift. We can't earn it. There's no amount of good works. And it seems like, it seems like uh, you know, like it, it, because grace is so big, it doesn't matter how we can live. Grace will cover it all. But what does Paul say in Romans 6? What shall we say then to grace? What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? What does he say there? Another translation says, God forbid. By no means. How can we who died to sin still live in it? You, you get what that says there. If you've died to sin, that means you've died to sin's control. That's what it means to be a Christian. You're no longer under the control of sin. You have a new master. Who's your master now? The Lord Jesus Christ. You have a new nature in Christ. How can uh, we who declare that we're Christians, how can we live in sin any longer as the pattern of our life, as a continual pattern of our life? How can we say we're Christians when we still, in the, as a pattern of our life, live in sin? Paul says, no, by, by, by no means. How can we? Because we've died to sin's control. How can we who died to sin still live in it? Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of God of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. How did those other people walk? These false teachers in Philippi? They walked according to their sinful desires. But we're called to walk in newness of life. Here's what I want to tell you. The law doesn't drive me on, any, on either side of this spectrum. It doesn't drive me when we talked about in week one, the law doesn't drive me towards legalism where I got to add through the law to become, to, I got I to gotta take the law and add it to my life to be right before God. And the law doesn't drive me on the other side where I want to do away with the law just so I can be free. It's not about the law. Our Christian life is not about doing the law to be right and, and avoiding the law so I can be free. What's it about? It's about love. 
It's about love. You know what I don't have at my house? I don't have at my house signs written all over my, my house. I don't have a sign by the front door and a sign over my bedroom and a sign over my kids' bedrooms that, that read, don't beat your wife and kids today. I don't have those written around my house. Because I don't need them. Why? Because internally I've been transformed. Now look, God's law is good and true and never changes. And it is, it is a foundation of truth in our life. But this is not what Christianity is about. Our life should not center around the law, whether I'm trying to add legalism to my life to be justified or I'm trying to avoid the law so I can be free and live how I want to live. No, it's about love. It's about love. What drives my relationship with Christ is love for him. Why do I not sin against my Lord or why do I not desire to sin against my Lord? It's because I love him. Why don't I, I, why don't I desire to sin against my wife and my kids and, and you as my family of God? Because I love them and I love you. It's love that is my motivation. Not legalism and not a desire to be free from the law. It's love. Love is the center core of my life. A love for God and his word. A love for Christ and his work in my heart. What drives me is love. I'm no longer in love with my fleshly desires. I'm in love with Christ. I'm driven by love. Are you driven by love today for Christ? It's what drives you. I don't need signs written around my house. Why? Because I have an internal law written on my heart of all of love. Because I love them. 1 John 2 says this, do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh, the desires of the eyes, and the pride of life is not from the Father, but is from the world. And the world is passing away with its desires, but whoever does the will of God abides forever. It's about love. Don't love the world. Why don't we love the things of the world, the, the, the fleshly sinful things, or things that might even be good that become sin because we love them more than God? It's about love. We don't love the world and create idols in our life because why? We have a one true God that we worship above all else. That's our love for Christ. Amen? And that is evident in your life. And to say that you can live according to the sinful desires of your flesh and still carry the badge of Christian, I'm here to tell you this morning, it's not what God's word says. Over and over again in God's word, it says that if you say you're a believer in Jesus Christ, your life will show it. So if you're here today and you're trying to examine yourself, God's word calls us in Corinthians. It says examine yourself to see if you're in the faith. So I want to talk to those of you here this morning. If, you, if you're trying to figure out whether I'm a believer or not, look at your life. Examine your life. Do I have evidence in my life of the Holy Spirit's control? Do I have evidence in my life that I love Christ supremely above all else? Examine yourself. See if you're in the faith. The third thing I want to say is this. Go back to the text, Philippians 3. They had, they had as, as believers, our minds are not set on earthly things. Our, our minds, are, our, our, our fleshly desires don't drive us. And, 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 and in Philippians 3, it says this. These, these people that are driven by their fleshly desires, their God is their belly. It says this, that they have minds with minds that are set on earthly things. But here's the believer. Our citizenship is where? In heaven. 
And from it, we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body by the power that enables him even to subject all things to himself. The third thing I would say this is another mark of a genuine believer. As believers, eternal matters become our priority. Our minds are not set on earthly things anymore. They don't rule us. They don't drive us. The Hudats play at 325. And if I see him or I don't see him, I'm upset that Alvin Kamara is out just as much as you are. I am. They may or may not win. I don't know. But the sun doesn't rise and fall on the saints. And I hope Drew Brees comes back next week. But my mind is not set on earthly things. Why? Because they're all going to pass away. Alvin Kamara one day will quit carrying that football. Either because he gets hurt or too old. Or he dies. Three options. Hurt, too old, or he dies. He'll quit carrying it. Because it's not eternal. It's not eternal. As believers, eternal matters become our priority. As believers, the things of this world and the pursuits that drive humanity are no longer what drive us. Our priorities have changed. Why? Because our citizenship is not here. We're foreigners. We're strangers. We're aliens. We're from another planet. You ever had somebody tell you you like you're from another planet, but they're trying to be mean to you? Well, if you're a Christian, you can just say thank you. That's, that's true. I mean, now if you're being sinful towards them in your attitude and action, repent and be nice. But as Christians, we're from another planet. We're aliens. We don't fit in here. Listen, when, when Jesus was being questioned by Pilate after his arrest, listen to this conversation. So Pilate, this is in John 18. So Pilate entered his headquarters again and called Jesus and said to him, Are you the king of the Jews? And Jesus answered, Do you say this of your own accord or did others say it to you about me? Pilate answered, I... Am I a Jew? Your own nation and chief priests have delivered you over to me. What have you done? Jesus answered, My kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would have been fighting that I might not be delivered over to the Jews. But my kingdom is not from the world. As followers of Jesus and citizens of his kingdom, our pursuits and priorities are different than what they used to be when we were citizens of a different kingdom. I just want to say this very clearly so you hear it clearly. Scripture paints this picture very clearly. I know this is going to sound harsh, but it's true. You're either citizens of the kingdom of God or you're a citizen of the kingdom of hell. That's the truth. And as followers of Jesus and citizens of his kingdom, our pursuits and priorities change. We, never, we don't pursue the same things the world pursues. I was reading an article, a CBS News article, talking about how to become in the 1% top earners in America. Does anybody want to be in the 1%? The top 1%? Sounds good, right? What do you need to make to be in the top 1%? Do you know? Throw out a number. What, what do you think? To be in the top 1%? 5 million? Five billion? Wow. Okay, so someone said six figures there. The figure is this. It's 515,371 annual adjusted gross income. So if you're in here, if you're in here today and you make around $515,371, hey, congratulations, you're in the top 1% of earners in America. Welcome to the club. 
It's a very lonely club as far as I'm concerned in this room. <laughs> but, but I mean, I don't know. There might, there might be some people here that are, that are making that. Uh, but you know what the article said after that? It said, you better get busy working harder and making more money because the number's going to go up. And as I read it, I thought, man, what a, what a meaningless, empty life. If you have this drive, I got to be in the top 1%. I got to be making more money next year and more money next year. Look, there's nothing wrong with making money. If you're a business owner here, I'm not telling you don't make more money. Make more money. Be a blessing to your employees and to your family. But, but it, it's just sad when it becomes the driving point of your life. Why is it sad? Because of what Jesus said in Matthew 6. Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy, where thieves break in and steal. But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. So why don't we lay up treasures here on earth? Because this earth is not our kingdom. It's not our home. Our kingdom is in heaven. And so that's why we do pumpkin patch. That's why we do foreign mission. That's why we invest in the kingdom of God financially. Because it is eternal matters that matter the most. It's how can we get the gospel message out to as many people as can, at, that, that we can possibly get it out to. Our minds are not set on earthly things. Second Corinthians 4. So we do not lose heart though our outer self is wasting away. Our inner self is being renewed day by day. For this light momentary affliction is preparing an eternal weight of glory. Look at verse 18. As we look, what, what is our eyes set on? As we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are what? Transient. As I always joke at funerals, you don't ever see anybody with a U-Haul behind a hearse. Because you don't take any of it with you. Because the things that are seen, they're transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. And here's my concern for my life and for your life and every church around this country, around this world. If we're not careful, we can become so distracted by pursuits that do not move the gospel forward. That don't help the gospel move forward. The greatest eternal priority we can have as believers in this life is the priority of seeing the gospel message advance. That's what drove the Apostle Paul. That's why he was so adamant about false teachers. And and you see, he was so passionate about the false teachers of legalism. And he's so passionate, even with tears, about the false teachers of of liberty in their faith. He's, He's so passionate about it because he knows that both of those sides of false teaching, any false teaching, it pollutes and waters down the gospel. And the gospel is what we have. It is the central core of why we're even here today. It's why we worship. It's why we sing songs. It's why you sit and listen to me for 45 minutes. You could be doing something else right now, but you're listening to me talk. Why? Because I'm preaching God's word to you, his eternal truth. And as believers, you're hungry for it. And so that should be one of our our, our major priorities in this life is that we want to see the gospel message advanced. The apostle Paul was driven by it. Listen to what he says in 2 Thessalonians. This is what the apostle Paul says. He says, finally, brothers, Pray for us. Pray for us. This is the same Apostle Paul that was persecuted because of his faith. He was beaten with rods and shipwrecked, naked and deserted, hungry and cold because of his faith in Jesus Christ. And he says, brothers at Thessalonica, I want you to pray for me. 
And, and rightfully so, he could have had a long list of many things to say. Pray that my, that my back would start to be healed. I have these wounds and these sores. Pray, pray that I'd have provision to store up for the times when I'm hungry. And extra clothes for when I'm cold. Pray that my needs would be met. But what does he say? Let's go back to the text. He says, brothers, pray for us. What, and what does he say? That the word of the Lord may speed ahead and be honored. Pray that the word of the Lord may speed ahead and be honored, as happened among you, and that we may be delivered from wicked and evil men. For not all have faith, but the Lord is faithful. He will establish you and guard you against the evil one. And we have confidence in the Lord about you that you are doing and will do the things that we command. May the Lord direct your hearts to the love of God and to the steadfastness of God. When I read that section in Thessalonians, that phrase, the word of God being honored, and it's just something in my heart, this deep welling desire in my heart for our church and for our community, that we would honor the word of the Lord, that we'd honor God's word, that we would allow through the things that we do, that we would, we would, we would facilitate the word of the Lord speeding forward. Because you know when the word of the Lord speeds forward, when God's word, his gospel truth speeds forward, what happens? Lives are changed. Lives are healed. People come to faith in Jesus Christ because eternal matters matter the most. Amen? Is that the, the desire of your heart with, with my desire? That the word of the Lord would speed forward? We live, we live in, in perilous times. We live in difficult times in our country. We really do. We live in times where truth is not tolerated. We live in times where obvious realities aren't even tolerated. There's, it just, there's insanity in our country today about truth. There is no truth anymore in our country for those who aren't believers in Jesus. You are your own truth. That's the mindset of the day. There's no objective reality of truth. And you know what burns me up more than anything? is Christians that are pursuing things that are just meaningless in their life whether it's fleshly desires or fleshly pursuits or it's things that don't matter to the kingdom, just pursuing things that, that aren't about moving the gospel forward. We live in crazy times. And persecution's coming for those who don't compromise the truth. And what do we need? We need to be, we need to be empowered and strengthened and have resolve. That we won't compromise the truth of God's word. But if we play fast and loose with God's word and we can take it or leave it and it's not a priority and we're chasing all kind of other things, we won't be ready for when it comes. And especially if, if, if we are only Christians in name only. As we read in Matthew 13, the cares of the world, the deceitfulness of riches, the pressure from the outside, it'll come in and it'll choke out that seed of the word that's in your heart and you'll fall away. We must believe the truth. The word of God must speed forward in our area, in our life, through our life, so people can be born again, so the gospel can move forward, so that people can escape hell and embrace eternity with God, so that ultimately Jesus can be glorified and he can be honored. It's about the praise of his name. It's about the glory of his name. That's why we go, for the praise and the glory of his name. Amen? Amen. Father, we come before you. This morning, we thank you for your word. It is what transforms us. God, I pray for those here this morning 
that may, may be on the fence. Maybe they recognize right now that they've just been a Christian in name only. They've not truly embraced Christ with all their heart. They've been clinging to a form of Christianity, but they've been denying the power of God to transform them. Lord, I pray that they would repent. They'd choose Christ. Respond in faith to Christ. God, I pray for those of us as believers in Jesus Christ here. I pray that we would have tunnel vision, that we would have vision that is centered on your glory and the praise and the glory of your name, that we would not be distracted and sidetracked to the right or to the left, that we would have have singular focus, God, for what matters most. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. I love you. See you next week.